A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and welcome along to another tennis podcast, another week of lockdown in the UK. I hope you're enjoying yourselves. If you're not in the UK and not in lockdown, enjoy that because it's rubbish here. Um, Everything's all the same. Tennis players still trapped in hotel rooms uh, in Melbourne and Adelaide, although they're a little bit less trapped in Adelaide. Uh, the tone of their social media posts has somewhat changed since you last heard from us. There's rather more a vibe of we're ever so grateful to be here. Thank you so much, Australia uh, and Craig Tiley and to all the health authorities for allowing us to be here and keeping us safe. Thank you very, very much. We've never, ever been ungrateful in our lives. <laughs> That's the that's the tone of what we're hearing. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a few days since there's been a diplomatic incident in the world of tennis, which is great news because it means we're allowed to solely focus today on Tennis Relived, our first episode of Australian Open Relived, when we'll be talking about Yvonne Goolagong-Cawley, or Yvonne Goolagong as she was known in the early stages of her career. David and Matt are with me. Uh, we've had snow this weekend. Sorry, Matt, you're the only place in the country that seemingly didn't have snow. Um, sorry about that. I don't know what to say other than, as is typical in the UK, when you get um, one day of snow, the next day the scene is quite depressing. There is a decapitated snowman outside of my window and it's making me feel a bit sad (laughs) so as fun as yesterday was you can feel a bit smug today that there's not a big white sort of battleground type scene outside of your window i mean if ever there was a time for snow i feel like it is it is yesterday when you can't travel anywhere you don't need to travel anywhere you can't be inconvenienced by it and yet we didn't have any at all we just had a gray damp miserable january day um but today the sun is out and the pavements are not slippery so today i am i am winning out of the snowy areas because i know david david had an absolute mountain david went sledging Uh, but failed to understand one of the key principles of sledging, which is that gravity is your friend. Uh, You need to find a hill, David, and push your kids 
push your kids down it. Uh, you found a yep. particularly labour-intensive way of doing sledging. Yeah, I dragged them about. Uh, <laughs> it's very flat where we live, so <laughs> we just went on the field and I just pulled them around for half an hour. And uh, yeah, that was my exercise for the week. Um, but uh, we had the best time, um, just sort of one upmanshipping everybody with snow snowmen making until we met our neighbour who seems to be able to carve some sort of ice ice sculptures out of the snow and created something that made us all knock ours down. Yeah. I I I do you friends with that neighbour, is it okay if I insult them? Um, sounds like you're about to <laughs> I just feel like that's not a cool move. <laughs> Oh come on! Everybody was enjoying when it. When everyone's created, they're really, they're really quaint, lovely snowmen. Some more impressive than others. To create a sort of eight foot tall transformer out of snow <laughs> is just a big fu, isn't it? <laughs> Go and have a look to on the our community Instagram page if you'd like to see it. Uh, it's, is um, is this neighbour quite smug? Y- yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Especially at the moment. <laughs> Do, do judge books by their covers folks that is the that is the lesson i'm teaching you all um our mascot for this week is cookie owned by shane cookie is a 13 year old labrador um cookie will be our mascot throughout this week of uh, australian open relived pods and there will be more information about her in our newsletter so um do subscribe to the newsletter for that and a multitude of reasons always great content it's uh, it's matt's finest work or some of his finest work uh, and i'll be drip feeding you information about cookie throughout the week i i'm i'm limited to short sharp bursts because i have the the eyes of david law boring into me like we've talked about dogs for 30 seconds now catherine time to move on to tennis uh, so that's your your cookie lot for now laura vagani is a lovely guest editor for this show and uh honestly laura your your questions and your talking points about about yvonne Gulagon, it, it's clear that you're a, a big fan of hers um and they've provided a really great framework for our research and our our thinking about this show um so thank you so much for those and uh, i hope you you hear threads of uh, of your your thoughts um throughout the course of the show which is going to be about as i said Yvonne Gulagong, somebody who throughout the course of last year as we were doing tennis relived shows her name sort of came up tangentially um thinking about talking about you know other players and totally fits into that category of somebody who I probably could have told you roughly how many slams she had won I think I knew that she had won Wimbledon as a as a mother um, I probably would have said that that happened in the late 70s something like that um, I knew she was uh, an indigenous woman and that was a significant thing in Australia but I probably couldn't have told you an awful lot more mm. than that I certainly don't think I'm ashamed to say I'd ever seen a clip of clip of her play or not not one of any length that I can say that I I remember yeah I I agree with you Uh, and obviously I go back further and was alive when she was when she was winning things but it was before I was really conscious of of the sport and understanding of it Um, and even and throughout my life and 
following tennis, covering tennis, I would have seen a match point here or there or a celebration of hers with the trophy. I knew what she looked like. I'd, but I knew nothing about how she played. Um, I knew I knew that she was somebody that people t- sort of talked about a lot, and I didn't really know why. I, I didn't really... Uh, she, I didn't really know the story enough, and and as you say, when we were doing the Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe stories and and various other um, tennis relived editions over the last year, her name kept coming up from listeners who who were there, who were alive and and following the sport and watching her matches and and wanted to to hear about her and what she's doing now and, and just remembering to be nostalgic and and so I think she was. From that, she was always somebody we were interested in looking into. And having done so now, I'm so glad we have because she's she's a real discovery for me as as somebody a lot more than I expected her to be in terms of the history of the sport. Matt is somebody who was very much not at all alive <laughs> throughout any of Ilvon Gulagong Cawley's career. Um, what What was your knowledge coming into this? Yeah, I'm in very similar boat to you, Catherine. What I remember most is when we were researching for Wimbledon Relived and we were thinking about what shows we would do for that fortnight, I just randomly asked my mum, who do you most associate with Wimbledon? Who would you who would you want to hear about in a in shows about Wimbledon? And without hesitation, my mum said, Oh, Yvonne Goulagon. I've just uh I've just told everyone how old my mum is, basically. Um, <laughs> sorry, mum. But I think I think it's what David was saying. We've, we've received so many emails as well from listeners, really kind of who lived through that era, professing their love for Gulagong. And I think she strikes me as a player who, if you saw her play, you were really impacted by what you saw and you and you were moved by her story. And... Um, as you've said, it's it's been it's been really eye opening and fascinating to find out that that story ourselves. Mm, that that tone, that way of talking about her and the way she played, is something that's been completely consistent across everybody that we've spoken to for this show. We're going to be hearing from Pat Cash, from Pam Shriver, from Mary Carrillo, of course. But let's start off, clang, drop, name drop. Uh, by hearing from from Billie Jean King, who when I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago in that interview that I I hope you've all listened to, um, and if you haven't, then please do. But I also asked her what her recollections and thoughts were on Yvonne Goulagong, who she had the opportunity to play many times in her career, and and this is what she had to say. Well, one thing you never got bored you never got bored when you're playing Yvonne. She was so beautiful um, and did unexpected things, which was always kept it interesting um beautiful back end oh my gosh um and she really ran around the court so easily and um very she's very balletic you know she is better some of them are just beautiful to watch um and everybody loves Yvonne I mean Australia just loves her I love the way they greet her the way they embrace her um she is so nice. She always walks in the locker room. Good eye, Mike. How are you? It's like so sweet. And she's done so much for tennis too. And she's so kind about it. Like having her foundation or helping the indigenous people in Australia now. And uh, she really has given back a lot. And I hope everybody knows that. Um, but she was a great champion. Oh my gosh. She's just a champion on and off the court. 
I mean, just absolutely fun. And we will talk lots about uh, everything that that Billie Jean picked up on there, the the work she's done off the court and the significance of that. We will we will talk plenty about all of that. But first of all, let's tell you who who Yvonne Gulagong was, how she came to be a tennis player, because it is so much more of an extraordinary story than than I than I realized. I mean, some call it sort of the most extraordinary rags to riches stories ever in tennis. I don't think you can definitively say that, not when, you know, we've done shows on Althea Gibson and uh, for example, but certainly it is right up there. She was born in 1951 in in rural New South Wales. She's the third of eight chil- children in an indigenous family. Um and theirs was the only indigenous family in their town. Her father was a sheep shearer um, and the family lived in a one-story home, um, which is a tin shack with dirt floors and no electricity. Um, and I know one of one of the areas that, that Laura was, was keen for us to, to dig into was was what life was like for indigenous people in Australia at that time. Um and the answer is, sadly, unsurprisingly, that they face completely wild, widespread discrimination um, throughout throughout Yvonne Gulagong's childhood. The Australian government's policy at that time, and this this really is extraordinary. And excuse my naivety on this. I'm sure Australians are screaming uh, screaming at their devices, and I, I hope that this is sort of well known and talked about and reflected upon there, but. I had no idea that the Australian government's policy at the time was to forcibly remove Indigenous children from their families and relocate them to camps where they could be properly educated and integrated into white society. Um, and a quote that uh, I, I found from Yvonne Gulagong on, on this was she said, every time there was a shiny car, my mum must have worried if it was the welfare people coming for her ki- kids. We had no idea. We thought the welfare man was there to take us away. The way John Wertheim describes that story is that Yvonne Goulagong and her siblings were not aware of the seriousness of the situation at the time. Um, he talks about it as though it was a game they used to play in their house because the parent, you know, where they would see a car and everyone would go and hide under the beds and they would they would make it into a game. But later, obviously, Yvonne Goulagong learned that actually her parents were shielding her from something potentially very, very serious. Um, and I think that's a... That's a theme I found, that her parents did try to really shield her. Her indigenous heritage was not was not a huge presence in her household uh, while she was growing up. And she talked about how she used to write essays at school where she would sort of talk about the white settlers in Australia as, as her heroes. And she would talk about the life that they led and how they, um, how they would shoot indigenous people and... Yvonne said she didn't think anything of this. That was that was kind of how in, indoctrinated it was. And, um, yeah, just to paint a bit more of a picture about life for Indigenous people in that time. So Yvonne, as you said, was born in 1951. It wasn't until 1965 that Indigenous people had the right to vote. And it wasn't until 1967 that they were included in the census. 
and this is still a modern day issue as well. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've you've been in Australia on Australia Day, and the last two times I've been in Melbourne, I've noticed small protests from Indigenous mm. people who they call it Invasion Day because yeah. they say that. Australia hasn't reckoned with its past enough and hasn't acknowledged the the wars and the massacres that took place. Um, it's something that became more of a feature of Ngongulugong's life later when she really started to engage with her heritage, I think, but it certainly impacted her her, um, her childhood a lot. And um, I also Googled the, the town where she was born, Borellan. And if you go on Google Maps, there's there's one landmark in the town and it says the big tennis racket. So I clicked on that and it is exactly what it says. It is a huge tennis racket and it's a replica of Yvonne Goulagong's Dunlop wooden racket, 20 times the size of a normal racket. And it's a monument to her. And it's um, it's just a, re- a sort of permanent reminder that, as you said, one of the one of the most remarkable tennis stories started in uh, in that town. They're so proud of her now. Oh, I love that. I'll, I'll pop that on my list of places to visit when <laughs> I'm allowed to visit anywhere. <laughs> um, her first tennis racket was made from a wood fruit box and it looked like a paddle. It had no strings. And her first tennis dress was made for her from bed sheets by her mum um, she hit, she'd hit for hours on end against any flat surface she could find, um, and she was she was finally able to play tennis on an actual tennis court in in Berlin, um, thanks to a local resident, and uh, he was also the the president of the local tennis club, Bill Kurtzman, and he saw her peering through the fence at the local courts, and he encouraged her to come in and play. Um, so that's. That's where that all started, and and another thing that that um, Laura was was interested in is, is finding out about is whether there were any other indigenous athletes for that Yvonne Gulagon might have been able to to look up to and and see as inspiration for her at the time. And I found an article, um, or I found several articles, but twenty five greatest uh, indigenous indigenous sports people in Australia and and there were a couple of them that would have predated Yvonne Goulagong but I could only find find one one woman really um that was a, a cricketer a real pioneer called Faith Thomas um I found an article from 2016 with her in the Guardian uh where she says uh, she still thinks she holds the record for being the fastest woman bowler ever I'm um, not sure if that's still the case. I'm um, not sure if we'll ever, ever know because um, they wouldn't have been able to track speeds in those days. Um, but she was the first Indigenous woman picked for any national sports team when she bowled for Australia in 1958. Um, and uh, the first uh, Indigenous woman to represent Australia on the cricket field. And she opened the bowling for the Melbourne Test of the 1958 Ashes series. Um, now I don't know if she was any kind of inspiration for for Yvonne Gulagong. I couldn't find any any quotes about from Gulagong about Faith Thomas, but you know t- she would have been the only female indigenous indigenous athlete of any of any note at the time, which is I suppose not extraordinary given re- given what we know um, about that time in Australia's history. But you know. Pretty amazing. 
There's something particular about the fact that it was tennis that became a chosen field. We talked about this with our Thea Gibson, tennis being this fortress of, of white men. And obviously Althea Gibson had, had broken down those barriers. But then here was Yvonne Goulagong doing, doing similar things. I, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but I, I know on her first visit to Wimbledon in 1970, she was really surprised that there was so much press coverage about her. Um, but obviously her story was a, was a fascinating one and one worth reporting. And maybe... Maybe she was a reluctant racial symbol at the time, but she was one. And I think she used to feel a little bit irritated about how the word Aboriginal or Indigenous would always precede her name in these in these articles. As far as she was concerned, she was just a tennis player who wanted to play. And um, as you said, there weren't there weren't many inspirations for her. She was she was a real trailblazer, especially in tennis. Mm, absolutely, she. And this is probably the sort of the it, it, it's pointed to as kind of the big moment in in her career where where her fortunes kind of changed. Um, word about her talent started to travel, and in 1965, somebody called Vic Edwards, who was the owner of a, a tennis school in Sydney, he was tipped off about Yvonne Goulagong's talent, and he travelled 400 miles to Barrowland to to look at. Gulagong, who was 14 years old at the time, and uh, he immediately saw her potential. He persuaded uh, Yvonne Gulagong's parents to allow her to move to Sydney to be coached by Edwards. She ended up living in his household. He became her legal guardian, coach, manager. Um, It's documented that he kind of protected her and shielded her just as her family had from from the racial slurs and the discrimination. Um, he enabled her to compete in, in big city tournaments and taught her self-belief and, and made her realise how great her talent was. Um, and at the age of 15, Yvonne Goulagong won the New South Wales Championships. Um, and in 1967, she competed in her first Australian Nationals at the age of age of 16. So... Look, he is a significant figure in Yvonne Goulagong's career. He is a complicated figure. Um, we've 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 tried to do quite a lot of research into him because we'd heard oblique references to him being a complicated figure and kind of aspersions cast on on him and his character. Um, there isn't really anything from Yvonne Goulagong herself to to suggest that or certainly to confirm that which makes it quite makes it quite difficult to really clarify what kind of a character he was so we're not we're not going to avoid it altogether it's just it's just something that we we it's hard for us to definitively look into david i think you found something from from peter bodo mm. um which is kind of as as good and de- definitive um an account perhaps of his character is is we might be able to find. Yeah, I mean, this reference, this is from Peter Bodo, who wrote for many, many years for ESPN's website, for Tennis Magazine, a huge figure in the world of the tennis media and somebody I've known well. And he's just been around for a long time. And he knew Yvonne and her husband, Roger Crawley, for many, many years and was was friends with them. And he had a, a brunch with them in 2007. Um, and he references... 
the the relationship Yvonne had with Vic Edwards through the prism of her establishing her her romantic relationship with Roger Corley, which would which would lead to them getting married. And Peter writes um, that Vic Edwards was had obsessively sheltered Yvonne throughout her youth that he was a talent-worshipping coach who discovered and whisked her away from her home to make her a champion, showed remarkable judgment as well, and it showed remarkable judgment from Yvonne as well in order to to know what she wanted to do when she met Roger, in that uh, they had met secretly in London throughout this time because they knew that Vic Edwards would not want Yvonne to have any part of this relationship with Roger Corley. Um, he wanted to wring every drop of potential out of her game and fooling around with boys would interfere with that, wrote Peter. Um, Roger fought Edwards for Yvonne and Roger won. Soon after Yvonne accepted his proposal, Edwards gave her an ultimatum, it's him or me. She said she was marrying Roger no matter the consequences. He didn't blink. She terminated their relationship, and Edwards ultimately went to his grave with his eyes still shut. Wow. I mean, aside from any of the Vic Edwards stuff, that's a that's a beautiful love story. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, and actually it's it is quite interesting. I mean, obviously it's fast forwarding a little, but just to to see in the nineteen eighty Wimbledon final to see Roger Corley in the the player box and. And to hear the the stories, a, a, a British guy who who just was has seemingly been by her side throughout, no matter what, and you know more than forty years of of, of being together now, um, and yeah, it's it does seem to be a a lovely story and, and one where where it just conquers all, really. Um, mm. But but. You're right. When you read the how did she become a tennis player, clearly Vic Edwards was a huge part of that. So it's it's complicated and it's it's you you don't know where to stand on it. You can only document the information that is out there and so that's what we're trying to do. Mm. Yeah. What I would add on Vic Edwards as well is he was he was a renowned tennis coach. I think he he discovered Bob Hewitt and Fred Stolly and he was and i think he had a scout who had seen gulagong and been so swept up by her natural style i think they were saying that she knew how to get to the ball before she knew how to hit the ball she just had this this sort of natural positioning and natural understanding of the game and it was that that really caught the eye of those talent spotters yeah i love the idea of kind of chinese whispers about mm. this this young girl's extraordinary ability kind of spreading across new south wales like <laughs> yeah 400 miles away in sydney people know yeah. about about this yeah. special talent and, you, and, we, and we see that on the tennis circuit all the time don't we but in these little confined mm. spaces of a grand slam or go to court 18 because mm. there's this amazing junior we like to do it as as tennis media and followers and all the rest of it fans like to do it agents like to do it but the idea and then matt says oh yeah i've known about them for three years <laughs> but we don't always get it right <laughs> no. but it, i mean it is the ultimate though isn't it to think um that there is somebody out there hundreds of miles away that you know doesn't doesn't know she's going to be a tennis player uh, and is talent spotted and then it happens let's hear from mary carillo shall we on that extraordinary 
Chinese whisper inducing talent and ability of uh, of Yvonne Goulagong? I think the reason people love Roger Federer is because he makes a hard thing look easy. And I mean, anything, anybody who can play a musical instrument or create art or if you're watching a cooking show and some little old Italian lady is sticking meat in pasta and creating tortellini with both hands at the same time, you got my number. And that's what Yvonne looked like out there. I mean, her game, it, her game did not look taught. It looked like she just knew what to do. And there was not one muscle system in her body that ever railed against another one. She was so smooth and so beautiful to watch. And I mean, obviously her backstory, her father was a sheep shearer in Borellen and her mom, Ash Barty told great stories. She knows Yvonne well about how her mom used to make her tennis dresses, you know, uh, and, and her first racket was a fruit box and, you know, all that stuff is great. But what I liked most about Yvonne, again, she didn't look like anybody else. She didn't, she didn't play like anybody else. And, um, I'll, I'll tell you, um, in 1980 at the Avon Championships, I was just there to watch. Um, and I had already seen an awful lot of Tracy Austin and Yvonne Gulligan. And they were playing in an indoor carpet court. Um, and it was, it was the last match of the night. And so all the people that Madison Square Garden Network could have interviewed that night, they were all gone. There, was, there were no players left. There were no celebrities left. And so it was like a half-empty crowd, and they were about, and Tracy and Yvonne were about to play. And so someone from the Avon PR said, well, go talk to Mary Carrillo, you know? she's." And I just went into this, and I'd had a couple of pops, you know? I'd, I'd been enjoying myself. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I had plenty to say. Um, and I just started saying, I just started talking about why I was hanging around for this match. Um, and that what you got to watch out for in the match was that Tracy was playing a sport and Yvonne was going to play a game because that's what it always looked like when I watched Yvonne. She made it look like she was just playing a backyard game and her, and it was full of imagination and whimsy. And whereas here's Tracy Austin, her, her game is so taut. It's so efficient. It's so accurate. It's so, you know, she looked like a little Chris Everett and Yvonne, it looked like she would take back her racket and then decide what to do to the ball at the very last fraction of a moment. And that could mean that she carved under it uh, to hit a backhand slice winner or she'd hit a lob or she'd run. Cr- so anyway, <laughs> I was going on and on about why this is going to be a great match. So one of the announcers said to his producer, hey, why don't we have her hang around and call the match? And so they stuck me up in the booth. I didn't even have headsets. I, I just, they put a microphone in front of me and I just kept going about the stark differences between these two and why it was so great and why, and how Yvonne was such a rhythm player and she can have her off nights too, but not tonight. And then, and Tracy and, and I'm going on and on and it turned out to be a great match. It turned out to be a seven, six and a third win for Tracy. And it was just the prettiest thing to see, to see because Tracy, again, we've all seen Tracy play. You knew how she played. You know how she thought. You knew what her patterns were. You knew what she was trying to create out there. And with Yvonne, I mean, it looked like she was just playing to music only she was hearing, you know? 
it was just a, it was, that's what I liked about her game so much. And I think that's what captured the fancy of so many people uh, when they watched her play. Um, anyway, that was the start of my career because some guy hurt me that night. And a couple of months later, after a disastrous first round Wimbledon loss, he called me up and said, hey, I heard you at Madison Square Garden. Do you, you want to do a couple of matches? And that was about 40 years ago. <laughs> and I'm still on the same sentence. And if there are any uh, little old Italian ladies with uh, magical fingers uh, where Tortellini is concerned, we get in touch. We will supply you with Mary <laughs> Carrillo's number. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 one thing I've grown to love over the course of the last week is hearing people come up with turns of phrase to describe the effortlessness of Yvonne Gulagong's playing style. Um, Martina Navratilova uh, read a quote from her saying, Yvonne didn't serve and volley, she sauntered and volleyed. Um, and she, 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 that description from, from Mary of, of her um, playing with whimsy, mm. um, it, 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 it made me think of the, the fact that she became known for, for well, the term that was coined for her was going walkabout during matches. Um, and I found a quote from her being asked about that, being asked about her mental walkabouts. And she said, this was her looking back on her career. She said, I just enjoyed life. I like to smell the flowers along the way. Um, and she just wanted it to be fun. And she knew that when it was fun was when she she played her best tennis. Um, and yeah, I, I, I love that. And you can see that looking back on clips of her. You can see that in, mm. in the way way she played. Yeah, I watched the whole of the 1980 final over the weekend uh, that she played against Chris Evert. And um, I mean, you couldn't get more of a contrast in styles and approaches. It's a bit like what uh, Mary's talking about there with Tracy Austin, this this person who plays to these patterns and never gives you uh, a, a blink of an opportunity. You've got to create them for yourself. And Yvonne Gulligan was able to do that. There was there were some incredible rallies in that match, and and there was one that really sticks in my mind where she she throws things forward thirty five years to Roger Federer in as much as she's involved in this rally where both players are hitting great strokes, passing shots, volleys, lobs, smashes, and then she suddenly finishes it with this short angled backhand slice short which nobody else I don't think in the stadium has even thought of as an option to finish the rally. You know, there's no power on it. It's not an out-and-out -out drop shot. It's just one of those short backhand knifed angled slices that most players just don't even think of. And, and, and then, you know, you fast forward 37 years and she's asked about, um, about whether she watches tennis and she goes, I don't watch it much these days. Quite enjoy watching Roger Federer when he played Roddick the other night and hit that backhand passing shot shot off his toes. I got this feeling, yeah, that must have felt good. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a connoisseur. She only bothers with Roger Federer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's honestly how it comes across, really. And um, having described earlier how I just wasn't really aware of of what she offered. You can see in in a single match like that, where she's obviously played really well and she's a little older and and, and has properly um, 
grooved every her game to, that, so that she knows what it is. And as Mary says, she's playing a game. She's not playing sport in that traditional way. Um, you get that feeling that that you, life just feels possible. Everything feels possible when you're watching her play tennis. Throw the shackles off. Don't restrict yourself. Just just enjoy it. Imagine being able to go out in a Wimbledon final and think, just enjoy it. That's how it comes across as if she's playing the sport. Mm. And I read some quotes that her mother never used to ask whether she'd won or not. She just used to ask whether she'd had fun. And she's, it seems to me like she really carried that attitude into her pro career. And I mean, I just love it when a player's style is what people remember the most. I think there's, there's such an interesting dilemma for coaches of young players, whether you try and sort of impart them with the perfect proper technique or whether you let their natural strokes take hold. And I think, you know, technique is so important. You need reliable technique and all the best players kind of have this perfect form. But I think it's a good thing that they didn't try and completely alter Yvonne Goulagong and and they let her natural strokes take over because that's the part that people have really become enchanted with i think and um yeah it's 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 amazing to watch back the footage and to hear people talk so glowingly about about that style i think it depends how good your natural natural style is speaking personally I'm, i'm glad glad i received coaching <laughs> um so what about her career then and her achievements her first major um and note use of major we're gonna i've decided to sort of interchangeably sway with the wind on majors and grand slams um billy jean if you're listening i hope that's acceptable um so she won the french open in 1971 at the age of 19 um it was quite an interesting french open margaret court who was the top seed she suffered a, a shock early exit i think virginia wade was the second seed um and she she went out early as well and yvonne Goudagon capitalized um she beat a surprised finalist another australian woman called helen gawley in a straight sets final and extraordinary extraordinarily that was her that was her only french open title i saw some footage of match point and she doesn't celebrate, you know, she even Ooh, Medvedev style. Yeah, she was doing it way before Medvedev thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't celebrate. And, and I think she gave a quote afterwards where she said, you know, kind of what we've been saying, winning, winning or losing isn't the be all and end all. She said, I just want the spectators to take home a good memory. And uh, oh. I think everyone left with a good memory because they'd seen they'd seen her perform so well. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So she goes on to, to Wimbledon and this is just her, her second Wimbledon. She made her debut there in 1970 and... She had a love affair with Wimbledon. There's quite a well-documented little story that, that I've seen her tell on a few different chat shows and seen it in print a number of times of her. Well, let's use her own word. She says, it was the age of nine that I dreamed about winning Wimbledon. I read this cartoon magazine story called Princess in Princess Magazine about a young girl who was found, trained and taken to this place called Wimbledon where she played on this magical centre court and eventually won. Every time I went to hit against a wall, I used to pretend I was there and every time I went to sleep, I would dream about playing on that magical court. And it came true. That dream came true. In 1971, she beat Billie Jean King in the semifinals. She beat Margaret Court, who was the top seed in the final. And, and that was an extraordinary upset at the time. Uh, here's a, a few excerpts from a, a New York Times write-up about her victory in 1971. It said, The margin by which she destroyed her 28-year-old Australian opponent defies belief. Of all the reputations that have been shattered here over the past fortnight, this was the most formidable. Rod Laver, Ken Rosewall and Mrs Billie Jean King have been beaten on occasion, but Mrs Court, the 1970 Grand Slam winner, the Australian, French Wimbledon and American titles, was a two-to-one favourite to win today. Yvonne said that she had received a good luck cable before today's match from her parents in the tiny Australian town of Barralan. 365 miles southwest of Sydney. The parents and six of their children watched the match on television. Her father, Ken Goolagong, was quoted in dispatches as saying that when Yvonne won, the kids all ran around the room shouting and leaping. But he said that Yvonne, the third eldest child, will be treated just like all the others when she comes home. Among the 15,000 Wimbledon fans who saw her today were Prime Minister Edward Heath and former Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, who joined Princess Margaret in the Royal Box. That is a collection of people that, that dates, <laughs> d- d- dates it all rather, isn't it? Princess Alexandra, president of the All England Club, came down on court and awarded Miss Goolagong the silver platter. Her victory was worth $4,300. And her plan tonight was typical of a teenager. 
who takes the pressures of championship tennis in her stride. She said, I guess a group of us will go to a disco tonight to celebrate. She said, come to think of it, I was going to celebrate anyway. <laughs> Alf Chafe, an Australian newsman, newsman who's been staying with Edwards, with, with that's Vic Edwards and his wife, said Yvonne, quote, hasn't got a nerve in her body. She showed me her gown for Saturday's Wimbledon ball last night. And then I knew it was curtains for Margaret. So she already, she had her ball gown before she'd won. <laughs> that's a really baller move, isn't it? <laughs> it's as baller as it gets. I love that. This sort of completely understated total self-confidence and self-belief. Really cool. Love that story. Um, so that was her, her second Grand Slam title. Um, her first Wimbledon title. She reached three further Wimbledon finals in the 1970s. And she would win She would win another Wimbledon. And we will come on to talk about that. But but first of all, let's talk about her her experiences at the Australian Open, her home Grand Slam, which she won four times and three times consecutively between 1974 and 1976. And all the write-ups I've I've read of that first victory in 1974 suggested it was it was a long time coming. It felt like when Andy Murray won Wimbledon in 2013, um, it felt like there'd been years of people saying, "When's she going to win this thing?" Um, she'd lost in pre three previous finals by that stage and she beat Chris Evert finally uh, in the 74 final. It was played in oppressive heat and humidity. Uh, this was from a, a write-up uh, on the Australian Open website and she actually took a shower between the second and third sets and when she returned to court for the third set, she was wearing what became her trademark wet handkerchief tied around her neck to keep her cool. I love that. That yeah. is a technique I'll be trying in the future. <laughs> in the snow? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the, you know, in the summer yeah. to come. Um, so, uh, yeah, just so then she comes back in, in 1975 um, to defend her Australian Open title for the first month, uh, for the first time now, just a few months prior to that, l less than that even, I think just a few weeks, um, her father, Ken, um, was killed in a in a car accident in Sydney. Um, she still defended her title. She beat Martina Navratilova in the final, um, but she she was seen weeping on Vic Edwards' shoulder during the presentation ceremony. Um, I mean, just extraordinary to think that uh, that she was able to do that. Um, I mean, by all accounts, she was she was in the states at a tournament in in Houston. Uh, when her father died um, and it was just this tremendous shock. He was only 44, 44 years old. It happened all of a sudden and uh, Yvonne out of the country. So extraordinary that she defended that title. And then um, she coasted to the title again in 1976. And then in 1977, there were two Australian Opens. Uh, there was one in January, which she skipped because she was pregnant with her daughter, Kelly. Uh, but then she returned for the December edition and claimed her fourth and final title. Um, and by doing that, she became the first mother in the Open era to win a Grand Slam title. Um, so technically, she won four in a row of ones she's played. And in terms of the dates, it looks like four consecutively um, 
but obviously the history books around that time with the Australian Open are a bit they're a bit quirky. And and that second Australian Open in 1977 there's this weird story about what the umpire had to do during the match because of the way the scoreboards were were done in those days the women took their husband's name Yvonne was married to Roger Corley and Helen Gourlay her opponent in that final was married to Richard Corley so they were both Mrs R Corley on the scoreboard <laughs> So the umpire just got confused during the match, gave up, and started calling them Yvonne and Helen. What a good idea! I've I've got a really I've got a really simple solution to that problem. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And actually, it, it is watching that 1980 Wimbledon final. It, it is so jarring to me to see Mrs. J. Lloyd, as Chris Evert was referred to, against um, Mrs. R. Corley. Uh, it just, <laughs> I did it. it it really dates it to me, at least. Um, I, I thought nothing of it when I was a kid, um, but yeah, it really dates it. Um, but by the way, the, the 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 thing that when we we talk about what did I know about Yvonne Gulagong, what I really really was taken aback by was just how consistent she was, how relevant she was for so many years. I didn't. I just Con- consistency isn't sexy, David. And yet she. <laughs> effectively had it all because she had the whimsy and the the skill the the racket ability and that was made su- it sexy and was supposed to be able to just turn up and just play this game and yet she's got this this list of honors um okay a lot of near misses as well but she was a relevant force for a decade yeah a, a, and 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 I, I wasn't expecting to find that when i when we decided to do the show And I think Laura pointed out to us that she reached more Grand Slam singles finals in the 70s than any other player, male Mm. or female. And when you when you think of the 70s, you think a a golden era of tennis at an incredible decade. So many great players. And Yvonne Goulagong was the one who reached the most major finals. Mm, she reached three Wimbledon finals in the 70s after winning the title in 71 and she had to wait till 1980 for her second Wimbledon title. It would it would be her last Grand Slam title and it is still the only triumph for a mother at the All England Club in the Open era. She had a three-year-old daughter, Kelly, with, with her husband, Roger. Um, she beat Chris Evert in the final. And she said that that second title was actually more special than the first. This quote from a a piece from the WTA website, she said, My dream growing up was to win win Wimbledon, which was fantastic when it happened in 1971. However, I loved playing after having Kelly. She made our lives complete and even more full of joy. In 1980, I had to overcome two years of injuries and illness. I really wanted to win Wimbledon again. I later wrote in my book that underneath the torrent of emotion I felt after winning was a deep and abiding happiness. The kind of happiness that comes when you know that you have truly, sincerely given your best and your best has been the best. Which is wonderful. I mean, slightly depressing to know that uh, I'll probably never experience that feeling. (laughs) But it sounds great. In your own sphere. <laughs> uh, there were a couple of lovely, uh, uh, wonderful account. I agree, and a couple of lovely commentary lines from that 1980 Wimbledon final. One from the BBC radio commentator Max Robertson at the time on Match Point. 
He explodes with, and in Barellan, you can throw your hats over the moon down under. Uh, and uh, Dan Maskell, who was the, the long-time BBC television commentator, and I think this really puts it into perspective. He said, she is one of the most popular players we've ever had at Wimbledon. And if you consider the decades that he'd seen by then um, and all the players that they'd come across, and yet she stood out for so many, I think, back then. And... and yeah, it really comes through in all the the accounts that we've we've got on this show as well. I think. I think it was at at that tournament that she was dubbed the Sunshine Supergirl by Bud Collins. Yeah, um, and that's uh, that's a nickname that's uh, that's really stuck. Um, Pam Shriver played that Wimbledon in 1980, and uh, she remembers it well. For me, the th- the tournament I remember the most was uh, my third Wimbledon, 1980. When after she had had like Achilles tendon major issues and she'd already had the primary part of her career in the 70s, she won Wimbledon as a mom. And it hadn't been done. It had been done. Margaret Court had done it. And um, it wasn't that unusual in 1980, but it was still given, given her injuries, given she'd had a baby. And um, that was an amazing win. Um, and it was quite a few years after she was, had won her first major. Um, and the other thing I think I think about having played her was just how it looked effortless. She just flowed around the court. She had a grace and a style, the, the, the slice backhand, the chip backhand, just how she moved around the court was as common looking as any athlete. And I know it for people who were great fans of hers, which were many of us, you, you could be infuriated that she could lose focus or whatever, but Whatever. That was a part of the beauty of Yvonne Goulagong. Um, and, and I think she's underrated as far as tennis greats, tennis champions who go on to do great things in their life and to improve the lives of others. What she's done um, for indigenous Australians for over decades and decades is really unbelievable. To me, it ranks right up there with uh, like the stature of uh, Arthur Ashe and in a different way. I mean, Billie Jean King is much more of a, um, of a in your face U S kind of promoter. And um, you know, uh, she'll, she'll wave the flag. Whereas Yvonne is much more shy, but what, what Yvonne's been able to do, I think is unbelievable. And I give her so much credit and, and Roger, her husband's been right there as a partner. So she's helped so many lives. I admire it. When she won that Wimbledon as a mother, do you remember what the response to it was like? What the reception behind the scenes in the media? Because obviously, I've got the 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 benchmark of how we talk about Serena now, who's aiming to achieve back what that. What was it like back then? Well, it was as popular a win. Uh, I mean, I compare it a little bit to more of a modern day when Kim Clijsters won as a mom in 09 at the U.S. Open. And um, say when Kim Clijsters won her first major after coming short, and she's such a popular player. Yvonne Goulagong, she was popular in every corner of the locker room, in every country she played in. So honestly, I can remember at Wimbledon when I would be outside center court, if she was playing on center court and not against, not against Virginia Wade or Sue Barker, but if she was playing against anyone else from another country besides Great Britain, you thought that Yvonne was from Great Britain. She was that popular. She was almost like 
a version of her era, like Roger Federer is popular universally. That's how Yvonne Goolagong was seen. It's just, you never heard anybody say any ill, anything bad about Yvonne. She was just, just lovely as a player, as a spokesperson, as a family person, and somebody who gives back to tennis and to her community. Yeah, and that is something something we should talk about her her post her post retirement career and her contributions to to tennis and and to her indigenous community because it's it's so substantial. Um, she 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 retired in 1983. Um, she was 32 years of age, and the injuries were kind of accumulating for her at this point. She had won 92 professional titles, uh, including seven majors. At the time she retired, she moved to to South Carolina in the states for a while, um, and she became the touring professional at the Hilton Head Racquet Club. Um, can you imagine that now, a seven-time Grand Slam champion becoming a, a touring pro at a at a local tennis club? Amazing. Um, By the way, there's a there was a lovely line, wasn't there, from Mary talking about how um, she went to a clinic with her playing doubles and and so forth. And and whilst you know she was a great presence in the in the in the the group, but at the same time, it came so naturally to Yvonne that when she was asked to sort of explain to, to everybody how, what to do, she was like, well, you just sort of do it. There's a line from Mary where she went, what, you mean tactics? <laughs> <laughs> this sort of really foreign concept is amazing. Um, so she, she eventually did move back to Australia, uh, to Noosa, which why wouldn't you? If, for anyone that's been to Noosa, if you had the opportunity to live there, you would take it. What's it like? I haven't been. Um, it is utopian. Oh. I learned to surf in Noosa. Oh, did you? Because they have um, they have sh- they have shark nets. <laughs> right. I had a go at cooks. I had a go at uh, surfing in Cornwall. Mm-hmm. Didn't go very well. <laughs> is there video of that, David? No. You've got quite a high centre of gravity, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Although, so does my brother, and he is a very good surfer. So. It's achievable, David. Have you you've seen the respective athletic <laughs> coordination of your, your brother and myself, right? I'm just saying, if we've learned anything from Yvonne Gulagong, it's, you know, dr- dream big. Okay. <laughs> just to say, the reason she went back to Australia was for her mother's funeral. Her mother died, I think, in 1991, and she went back for the funeral and, and she said... It's kind of like an epiphany for her. She suddenly, she suddenly realised that she had all this family and all this heritage that she'd never properly engaged with. And then it sort of started this new phase of her life where she really put all her energy and, and her focus into finding out about her own background. I think she wrote her autobiography quite soon after she returned. And then she's done all this incredible, incredible charity work for Indigenous people in Australia ever since. Mm, she she started working with Tennis Australia. She launched the Yvonne Gulagon Getting Started programme for young girls. Uh, and since 2005, she's run the Gulagong National Development Camp, which is for Indigenous girls and boys, which uses tennis as a vehicle to promote better health, education and employment. And she talks about how 
And this is really reminiscent of Billie Jean King when I when I read these quotes. She talks about how the camps are, they're not just to promote the chances of Indigenous youngsters to play the game. I mean, they are, um, absolutely. But it's also to, to help them to become coaches and administrators to, in, to increase representation of Indigenous, indigenous people throughout the sport. Um, and, you know, we, we've 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 talked a lot and Billie Jean King sort of the ultimate authority has, has talked a lot about the significance of that um, in 2007 this is an extraordinary story really she was retrospectively awarded a world number one ranking for a two week period in 1976 um, and uh, parts of this were uh, from a write up by um, the Australian journalist uh, Linda Pierce. She said the belated accolade followed a search of the WTA rankings archive in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is where the WTA is based, which discovered that several paper records were missing between April and July of 1976, and most notably the period from April 26. Uh, the rankings are, are now issued weekly, but they used to be calculated fortnightly. And that was right up until uh, 1990. And it says it transpired that Gulagon Corley overtook Chris Evert by 0.8 of a ranking point after the Australians' victory in the Virginia Slims Championships held in Los Angeles in late April uh, before Evert regained the crown on May the 10th. And speaking at, at the time in 2007 when she was awarded officially the world number one ranking Yvonne Gulagong said the following she said I was asked the other day what other times in my life I have felt this great felt this proud and I think it was walking over the Sydney Harbour Bridge in 2000 for Aboriginal reconciliation I was very proud not just for myself but for all Australians because there were thousands of people and I was just overwhelmed by it all so this is up there yeah, it's a lovely story, isn't it? I think um, John Dolan, who, who mm. now works for the LTA, was was responsible partly for for finding out that information in the rankings archive, you know. And um, she, she thanked John for his detective work. Hey, <laughs> well done, John. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it is one of those. Like I say, there's another one that I just feel. I know you asked at some point to 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 Mary. Do you, do you feel that? Yvonne Goulagong was underrated to some degree. And she said, well, not by me. But I, I feel like a little bit of it has been lost in time. A little bit of it is of her impact on the actual sport and, and her success is forgotten in a way that, uh, that uh, again, I'm just glad that we've, we've at least educated ourselves about it because she did so much more than I realised. I was thinking that even that 1980 Wimbledon win was then overshadowed almost because the next day you've got Borg McEnroe. And mm. of course, that is an incredible match, which quite rightly lives in everyone's memory and everyone's very aware of that match. But it, I think it, it, it goes somewhat to the disservice that tennis does women by scheduling them on the Saturday and the men's final on the Sunday that occasionally those incredible women's finals, which were every bit as magical and special as the men's finals sort of inevitably or maybe not inevitably because you can do something about it but often get a little bit forgotten um you know i was reading mm. some of the write-ups of that 1980 wimbledon and and yvonne winning as a mother is 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 buried because this incredible match took place the next day so yeah i, I certainly think 
she was appreciated and remembered, but there's there's parts of her career, as you said, that probably have been a little bit lost in time. Mm. I, I, I certainly feel, you know, given her achievements and the significance of her as a, a figure, I, I, I don't feel that she's perhaps talked about and recognised as much as she should be. I'm interested in whether that's the case in Australia, particularly now when they are... I mean, it, as Matt was saying, in a lot of people's views, not as much as they should be, but they they do seem to be starting to reckon with their 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 past concerning the indigenous population. Um, let's hear from Pat Cash on that uh, on on his recollections of of Yvonne Goolagong as a as a young male tennis player coming through the Australian ranks. As a kid, you know, sneaking into into Kuyong, uh, very very vivid. Watching Yvonne, two of the two of the people that I watched quite a lot of uh, when I was a young player coming through, and my coach would 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 ask would ask me to come and, and watch these players because I was li- I was smaller, you know, I couldn't hit the ball like like Newcomb and 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 those, those guys, but but I could hit the ball closer to the way the women played as a 16, 16 year old, and and he said you watch Margaret Court's back, Margaret Court and Yvonne's backhand, and they both had the most elegant beautiful backhands and so I used to sit there and watch them forever but yeah but Yvonne that was the way she moved was was phenomenal Margaret was a very powerful incredible athlete um you know she is a modern day athlete you know strong went to the gym did all that that sort of stuff and was super fit um Yvonne was a complete natural shall we say um not to say that she was better than or worse than than, than Margaret, um, but she floated around the court and very elegant, um, beautiful backhand, forehand was was flat, but her volleys, she, the way she could move around the net, uh, and, her, and, her, and her serve was very very precise, particularly on the on a grass court. Um, it was it was almost like poetry in motion when you watched her play, and, and you couldn't help but marvel at at her, at her balance, uh, you know, her focus. And she's just so charming. I mean, she's a uh, very pretty woman. And you, as a as a as a boy, as a schoolboy, you just sort of sit there and like, well, look at this. This is Jesus. This is an angel dancing around the tennis court. <laughs> <laughs> she oh, she seemed very popular. Is is that how it seemed to you as somebody? You know, I mean, you you've had your ups and downs with the, with the with the media and 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 you know you had had good good times and bad times. She didn't didn't seem at least from where I'm standing. To, nobody ever seemed to have any, ever get into any run-ins with her. Or she seemed to be incredibly popular. Very very popular. Um, you know, and here's the first indigenous woman who who made it overseas. I mean, she's a massive hero for the indigenous population, who were and still are. Uh, in many ways, uh, regarded as second-class citizens in Australia. And she was a hero. I'm not sure if, uh, you know, what everybody thought of her at that time. I certainly had my opinion, as we've spoken about. But um, she she really bridged a very painful situation in, in Australia between when it, when it comes to Indigenous rights. It is an understatement. I mean, here was... There's one thing watching some football players. We have Aussie rules football players or rugby players who are indigenous, and that was that was superstars. And and you could say, wow, look at these these guys. But she was she was our princess, our, our, our golden girl that went overseas and and won Wimbledon and was an international superstar, and who was indigenous. It was black, and it was it was 
Look, she's done more good in that department for, for relations. She continues to do so. I mean, her charity work is, is, is absolutely phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal what she's done. And she's it's a, absolutely a hero. Uh, I don't say, as you said, I don't know anybody who says, has ever said anything bad about her. And, and uh, yeah, she's, she's a role model for, for black, for white, for every Australian. Gosh, find someone that talks about you the way Pat Cash talks about Yvonne Gulagong. <laughs> yeah. That was just wonderful, wasn't it? And it kind of brings us on to, to the, the final talking point with, with regards to Yvonne Gulagong's legacy, I suppose, which encompasses all the work and she's done for the Indigenous population in Australia. And I know this is a completely impossible question and it's one I put to Mary with the preface that it's a completely impossible hypothetical question. But without Yvonne Gulagong, would there be an Ash Barty? And Mary reminded us of, of the story of her of her post-win press conference ash parties at the French Open in, in 2019, um, when all the questions were about Margaret Court and what an idol she must have been and following in her footsteps. And uh, Ash Barty very quietly but very firmly put the media in their place and said, Yvonne was my, my hero, Yvonne was my idol and my inspiration. Yeah, it says everything, doesn't it, really? And, and and the the straightforwardness with which she said that as well. She was categoric, emphatic, and um, there's a there's a lovely video that Wimbledon put together about Yvonne Gulagong, which is narrated by Ash Barty, and you can feel the affection and respect that she had and still has for her. Um, and they remain... Good friends, I, I, I believe. There's that. There's the lovely story that that you, you made me aware of, Catherine, in your reading about um, about the time out of the sport that that the Barty had when she was struggling, when she was coming along as a teenager, and she she was all a bit too much for her. And the first person that got in touch with her was was Yvonne, wasn't it? Yeah, Barty's uh, dad, Rob, said when Ash decided to give tennis away for the first time which is a lovely turn of phrase in itself, um, said when she decided to give tennis away for the first time because she'd had enough and we never thought she'd go back, the first text message she got from anyone was from Yvonne. And Yvonne said to her, good decision, doll, go and wet a line and catch a few fish. And since then, they've been in touch all the time, which I love. You know, it's so perfect, isn't it? As we've talked about Yvonne Gulligan, somebody who at the heart of her tennis was enjoyment and being in love with the sport and playing the sport, she just she got it from Ash Barty, um, and that's so powerful. And there are, I mean, there are so many nice quotes from Barty talking about Gulagong. She said, "Deep down, we are friends, but most importantly, we are family. That is something not many people can say, and we share that really special heritage, which is probably the most special thing about our relationship." When I first met Yvonne, I was gobsmacked. She's this incredible lady who had a remarkable career. And for us, our culture and our heritage, it is really special to know that she has paved the way for so many people. When I was a bit older, I began to understand how just how much of an impact she truly had, how much time and energy she's invested into creating opportunities for all Indigenous youth across the nation. And just to kind of complete the circle, the love-in circle of the, the Bartys and the Gulagongs, this is, this is Yvonne Gulagong talking about Ash Barty, 
She said, I didn't watch tennis during the early days of my retirement from the sport at all. And then Roger Federer came along and I thought, oh, look at those skills. Great quote. But I wish there was a girl or a woman who could come along and learn all those skills too and be able to base their game on Federer. And then along came Ash and I thought, fantastic. (laughs) Uh, just sums it up perfectly, doesn't it? And uh, I love the idea of her at home just only tuning in when Roger Federer <laughs> or Ash Barty's playing and just the rest going, nah, you're all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that's that's how it is. That, discerning. That works for me. Discerning is how I'd describe that. <laughs> I'm all for people being discerning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's lovely, isn't it? And look, we'll never know if there would have been an Ash Barty um, if there wasn't an Yvonne Goulagong, but it certainly would have been a lot harder for her. And I love, I love how much of an awareness and an appreciation Ash Barty has of of that. Um, it's really, it's, you know, we talk a lot about Ash Barty being this down to earth person with great perspective and everything, but it's really shown up by by that relationship we, she has with Yvonne Goulagong and how desperate she is to talk about her all the time and force her to the forefronts of people's people's minds as as much as as much as she can mm. yeah she gets it and um in keeping i feel with our decision and discovery of of the of the importance of the past above and beyond certainly what i would have given it in the past myself yeah i really appreciate that about barty um because not everybody can be bothered and and she mm. clearly can be so good for her mm. i feel like ash barty doing what she's doing is a, a perfect example of what progress is following on from yvonne Goulagong. and um as she said she's she's humbled she's honored to walk in in her footsteps and um yeah and just on on the australian open and on yvonne Goulagong. Do you remember last year, Martina Navratilova and John McEnroe went on mm. went on to court with a with a banner saying another of tennis's diplomatic incidents. <laughs> yeah, saying that they think the it's time for to rename the Margaret Court Arena the Yvonne Goulagon Arena. Mm. It was a beautiful banner as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean Margaret Court's being being honoured. This year, isn't she? Her name is her name is everywhere. She's she's been given a a something a, a, a merit. She's been given something. Anyway, this is not the Margaret Court podcast. This is the tennis relived Yvonne Goulagong podcast, and it's been an absolute pleasure to learn more about her. It really has. Um, we're going to be doing four Australian Open relived podcasts throughout this week. Tomorrow, David, we're we're encroaching on on your your era yeah aren't we i'm creeping back in time into the <laughs> 80s to to just sort of expand my compass of uh, of understanding and um uh, yeah when we were when we were divvying up the research david said yep i'll do that one yeah and then pete sampras and 1995 was mentioned yes. david's like, oh, i've already i've already started on the research for that yeah <laughs> so i'll just carry on with that um but yeah we're going back into 1988 and the first staging of the Australian Open at Melbourne Park, what was then known as Flinders Park, the move from Kuyong 
um, the the storylines either side of that in 87 and 88 hearing from more from Pat Cash who just has such a wonderfully vivid memory of that time and his huge part in it as somebody who was in the men's singles finals of both of them um, so we just want to tell the story of how the Australian Open moved, what it was like before, what it was like after, and the many, many storylines that were part of that couple of years. Mm. So that's tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, we're taking you back to the 90s and to uh, a huge moment in 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 Pete Sampras's career and in, and in the viewing public's um, perception of Pete Sampras. And then on Friday, we're going back to 2017, folks. When Matt was alive. When Matt... <laughs> more, yes, more than alive more than alive i've never felt more alive during, than during those two weeks that's what we're doing it yeah i was rooting through my phone yesterday for pictures of 2017 and oh yeah take me back um but that's for that's for later in the week um we're gonna we're gonna sleep sleep tight tonight with uh with thoughts of yvonne gulagong's poetic tennis so Thank you for for listening to this. Thank you for our contributors to that show. As always, it wouldn't be the same wouldn't be the same without you. Uh, we have shout outs, Matt. I think. Yes, we do. For Kate Summerfield, who who I think is very probably related to Ruth Summerfield, who we had uh, last time. Oh, all right, Kate. Hello, Kate. Quite like Kate Somerville, which is a really nice brand of skincare. <laughs> We're really scraping the barrel of links now, aren't we? <laughs> well, I could list famous Kates, but... <laughs> Winslet? Middleton? <laughs> Who's next, Next, Matt, Matt next. <laughs> next is Alison Copley. Oh, hello, Alison. Hi, right, Alison. My sister's called Alison. Yeah. Aww. She's lovely as well. So thanks ever so much for your support. And finally, David Smith of uh, Only Connect fame. Oh, we know David, oh, don't we? come on. He came yes. to our live show. He did. He's, he's a lovely what a th- fella. What a thing to have after your name, of Only Connect fame. Mm. Why is he of that fame? He he was on Only Connect. Was he? Two years ago, maybe. How, how did he perform? I think pretty well. I think his team name was the dark siders which i'm guessing means they're either pink floyd fans or star wars fans i think pink floyd but david if you're listening please do please do correct us and actually yeah. it's monday it only connects on tonight great uh. news <laughs> <laughs> never seen yeah, if it you want to, if you want to feel bad about your intellect only connect is the show for you yeah but so somehow it, it's it it manages to make you feel good at the same time it's, yeah because you get one if you and get you one f- you're like you're yeah, genius you feel like all oh, right i'm in mensa then yeah, yeah. <laughs> no no surprise that i've never seen it um but yes and endless admiration for david smith for for appearing on the show so thank you david thank you to chris albert lee our executive producer to zeus to rogue to scouser mousel to cookie more about cookie later in the week to pat cash pam shriver mary carillo and billy jean king uh i'll never tire of saying those words uh thank you for your contributions and we'll see you tomorrow for the 80s 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 